You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tuesday Ryan Hart. And I'm Tim Murray. This week on the podcast, we have the indomitable Isoke Fime with us. So glad to have you, Isoke. Isoke is um, a colleague of mine, Tim, that I wanted to have on the podcast because I think she brings such a beautiful, deep, and different perspective to this kind of work that we do. So I feel like with Isoke, I am in the same family of work, you know, systems change and equity, and yet um, Isoke's background and experience and special magic come at it from a completely different way than we do. And so I really wanted to have her on uh, so that our listeners and you, Tim, because you've been hearing me talk about her for years. I have. uh, Yeah. So we could just hear a little bit from her. So that's what we're up to today. And maybe we'll start a little ease in. Isoke, would you mind talking a little bit about uh, the work you and I have done together with Bali? Because that's just a project that's wrapping up. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about our work there. Sure. Hello, everyone. Well, let's see. I started working at Bali um, as a consultant. I think it was around 2008 or nine. and. Um, at the time, Bali was uh, in a, a partnership with an organization called the Academy for the Love of Learning, uh, which was uh, founded by Aaron Stern and um, one of our famous composers, whose name is slipping my mind right now, Leonard Bernstein. And... Um, mm. It's uh, the the academy is what it says it is. It's uh, uh, an organization that seeks to advance learning on all kinds of levels. And so um, I think through Mark Nicholson, um, uh, the Academy for the Love of Learning got involved with Bali and started bringing personal uh, transformation work to the then leaders, Michelle um, Long and Christine adjutant. Um, and so then it started mushrooming because here they were trying to change how people think about economy. They were trying to advance the idea of local economy as a way of pushing back on corporatization, etc. And in the beginning, they just, you know, pretty much had all white people for the most part. And, um, mm-hmm. And there was one African-American woman who was in the first cohort and she expressed her, uh, her sorrow and her mm. uh, despair about not having other people uh, be part of this movement. Um, and so Bali went through a process of um, identifying where, the, where they were stuck, working on where they were stuck and um, extending welcome to um, more and more people of color until finally, I think, you know, the last two cohorts that we did, there was a majority people of color. That's right. And you were part of making that happen. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, not kind of challenging for me to take credit, but yeah, it was just such a um, synchronistic time. Everybody was ready. People were ready. And so mm. each contribution 
uh, brought us closer to the fulfillment of that that goal of having more people of color involved in that in that work. Isoka, it's always been amazing for me to hear about the stories from Bale when Tuesday comes back and tells me about what not only what you've been doing in the room, but in many ways, what I found more captivating is the people she's been meeting on the hosting team and who she's been working with and the kind of design and delivery of the work and how, what an incredible kind of like learning container that has been for her, Mm -hmm. but I assume for everybody who's been involved, you know, and I would just love to hear you speak a little bit about that. Maybe you're, I mean, I'd love to hear kind of like how you've seen your contribution to it, but also a little bit about like, not just the program, but the, the container that the group of you managed to build together that then enabled this program, I think, to become something that sounded really powerful. Well, you know, it's, it's it was magical in a lot of ways. And when you consider that each of us brought our own theoretical frameworks into the work and we were able to uh, somehow still create a synergistic uh, process through which transformation could happen. Um, like, for example, with me, one of the theoretical frames that I brought um, is this idea of the mother-father-peer principle, also known as the bureaucratic, uh, symbiotic, and uh, se- decentralized modes of experience. And this is something that I picked up from grad school. And in a nutshell, what it's about is that in all realms of experience, we can bring this kind of framework uh, as a way of understanding what's happening here. Is the mother principle or the symbiotic principle uh, the strongest? Is the father principle or, or the um, uh, bureaucratic mode the strongest? Or is the decentralized mode or the peer mode the strongest? And how do we get them all working together? Each one has both a positive and a negative pole. So what we're used to in our culture is um, the the dark side, you could say, or the shadow side of the father, which is which is bureaucratic, which is suppressive, which is um, limits expression, um, and wants everybody to walk in lockstep. Um, the the mother principle when it's when it's in its uh, ascendancy is more about nurturing and about allowing the differences to, to be there, to express themselves and to bring compassion and gentleness. The peer is all about challenging the status quo. It's about creativity. What can we generate together? But when it's um, in its negative form, you could say it uh, doesn't, it doesn't really collaborate. It's sort of like, a me centered. It's all about like, Hey, I don't, you know, I, you do your thing. I do my thing and we're cool. So it doesn't really know how to uh, co- collaborate. So in my mind, I'm almost always thinking about who, wh- which one of those modes of experience is controlling the, the current moment, the current dynamic. Um, and so, you know, that was just my, what I brought to one of the things that I brought to it other people brought other theoretical frames and each of them seemed to, even though we didn't articulate them, when you operate from that place, you're, you're tracking. Do we need more gentleness here or do we need more fierceness here and more 
uh, accountability in this mm-hmm. moment? Or do we need, like Gibran brought, you know, a lot of accountability. <laughs> I shouldn't say brought, <laughs> yeah. brings, right? That's yep. his thing. He, he brings a lot of accountability. Yeah. But he also works on that mother mode, which is about nurturing and supporting what's vulnerable, supporting vulnerability. So these are all, these are just like one way to think about transformative learning. And can I just, so you, so we all have brought different theoretical frames. I'm really curious, and I want to actually get back to one framework you brought to each cohort I was in that was so useful that I'd just love people to hear about. But first, I want to ask you, what do you think? Why did it work, Isoke? We came from very different theoretical frames. We had different kind of theories that were ascendant in us. And what happened on this team? Because I think that's what people wonder about. How do we get these teams that are coming from such different perspectives to actually be able to move something forward? And I think we did that with this work. And so what? how would you attribute that we were able to move it forward, even coming from such different places? Well, I think each of us has done a great deal of inner work, Mm -hmm. um, which is anathema to some people. They don't want to hear that. But inner work is for me, you know, obviously for me, it's what it's all about. Why? Because when you do inner work, you get unblocked from your rigid attachment to your belief systems. You get um, a little more fluid. You get a little more, a little freer to be choiceful in any given moment. You're not rigidly attached to your own agenda so much. Um, so I think number one, we had all, we've all done a lot of inner work to free ourselves mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. needing to be right all the time or needing to have our way or um, feeling threatened by other people's gifts, those mm-hmm. kinds of mm-hmm. things. So I think that's one reason that it worked. Uh, I think we liked each other. That helped. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, you know, <laughs> that there was a lot of admiration and respect for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we all, like, there was a way in which, you know, like, let's say that the three were talking about you, Tuesday, uh, Gibran, and myself as the primary facilitators. Mm-hmm. When one person was at some kind of edge, the other two could hold and yeah. support the process. The process never broke down because of any one person's, yeah. you know, temporary moment of like, ah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some moments. And there, there were some, some moments. moments. <laughs> and, then, and then there were a couple of moments when we were all at an edge, but we knew how to work with each other. So all the temptation mm-hmm. to act hastily, to um, to become more shut, to shut the process down, or to all those kinds of knee-jerk things that happen when people are at an edge, we didn't do them because we 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 turned to each other and supported each other to come out of the stuck place. It's okay when you were talking um, uh, about the kind of the three the three elements you identified and you talked about the kind of shadow of the masculine i'm interested about what the ascendancy of that the positive ascendancy of the masculine is and i just partly because i just came from being at bioneers down in um california and uh and i went to a workshop around the sacred masculine it was what a workshop it was a panel 
you know. Uh-huh. And so it was really interesting. Um, and interestingly, you know, they, they had a very interesting discussion. But at the end, the basic outcome was like, do your inner work, yeah. which was <laughs> very aligned to what you just said. Right. Yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah, there we go. Um, but I did want to. But I just want to I just I just think I think we're seeing so much of like the 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 kind of masculine that is that is playing out in such negative ways in our worlds in our societies in our communities and i'm just i just love to hear like in its ascendancy what does that look like mm-hmm. what does the masculine look like when it's really shining and gifting into the world in a way that it unleashes positivity and potential what does that look and feel like well i think it comes into balance with the mother right like mm. so one of the things we think is that Oh, men carry the masculine. I mean, you, you know, if you're into yeah. Jungian psychology or any number of other transformative models, you know that all people carry all three of these. We all have the inner child. That's we right. all have the Thank mother you. and we all have the father. Um, so the, the, so for me, when the father stands shoulder to shoulder with the peer and says, See out there, I'm going to show you the world. I'm going to show you how to navigate that world. I'm going to um, require that you bring discernment. I'm going to show you how to bring discernment. I'm going to show you how to bring the sword when necessary, which is a scary thing in our culture because I think for a long time, the transformative learning communities were pretty much dominated by uh we could say feminine, but you know, the mother, because the need mm-hmm. was so yeah. great. We were also traumatized by mm-hmm. oppression and so many other things that we just needed a place to go and cry and, you know, and mm-hmm. feel good about ourselves. Connect. And so the mother principle yeah. began to dominate transformative learning uh, circles. And men coming in had to become more like women or like like female like the bring they had to stay in the female energy more and and the mothering energy all that's good not a problem but then that uh raw masculine energy got, sort of got marginalized because it's associated with violence it's associated with domination but we need that energy too we need that um uh primitive it has a primitivity to it um so i in my circles i saw a lot of men just like not be able to find their footing because they were afraid of frightening the women in the group they were afraid of showing up with their sweaty loud hard bodies (laughs) and so it's like no that puts the masculine in shadow you know and it and it and it Mm, actually mm accentuates the feminine shadow of like the nymphishness and like we're too, you know, we can't tolerate that. And, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is really ridiculous. Right. Um, Oh, it's okay. You just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like, boy, I just, I feel like you just really said something important that's illuminating what's actually happening in our, in our movement communities. Right which is like, we're so fragile that I haven't heard it as nymphishness. Like, oh, please don't say that. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. Right. When we, when, what, what, some of what we need now is yeah. sword, 
right? We actually need to like to stand up with some yeah. dignity, right? And say like, not that, this, yeah. this is what we're yeah. doing, right? And so it's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it when you talked about transformative learning spaces. I think that that's what's happening a lot in movement space, right? That kind of imbalance or the masculine because it's been um, that what did the word you use was marginalized and it comes out, the sword comes out, but in inappropriate yeah. ways or with inappropriate or yeah. on each other, right? Because we don't have the right language or we don't have the right, you know, like, but it doesn't come out where it right. needs to come out. So the out, sword gets right? used to cut each other rather than cutting a path, right? Yeah. The sword should cut a path. It, yes. should, it should create a clearing where um, we can see more clearly what's going on. Um, but what we do is we take that we take that uh, sword and we go at each other. Or, or I think you also mentioned the word bureaucracy. Yeah. We build dog. We build dogma. We build fixations around how things should be done, and then we defend those with our swords. Yeah. You know, until mm. our dying deaths. Yeah. Right. But we're just defending something we invented. Right. You know, <laughs> but we can't let it go with the same creativity that we made it. And so then this, so then this, then we get stuck in this, um, this unbalance. And this is where the peer comes in. So the peer says, wait a minute, that's not working anymore. Or that worked for you all, but it's not working for me. How about we try X? Mm -hmm. So the father principle, when it's in its, when it's in its strength and not in its um, inflated, um, fearful place because really it's a, con a form of contraction mm. when it's not there it's it it can make room for the peer it, mm. it can make room for mutuality mutuality is the word right like there is something that children teach us if we'll listen mm -hmm. if we had a day where we said okay anything that's not going to destroy property or bodies we'll take your lead we'll go wherever mm. they go They'll have us walking mm. over logs, over creeks. They'll have us, you know, in the mud. They'll have us doing all kinds of things that we have learned not to love anymore. Um, but that is also like the beauty of mutuality, if we could open to that. When all three are working in harmony, you have the collaborative mode. That's the fourth mode. So the collaborative mode is the mode where all, all three of those modes of experience get to have their space get to are honored um and something magical happens it's almost like this fourth thing happens we've seen that you know i think in the uh at uh, the academy they call it when you 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 create a, a learning field mm -hmm. you know this like everybody's uh, um, on all cylinders, all cylinders are firing for everyone. Nobody's feeling left out. Nobody's feeling like they're what they have to say is not valuable. Um, and nobody's feeling oppressed or repressed. Right. So that's when, you know, you're in the collaborative mode or the learning field has been activated and it's a beautiful thing when it happens. And that's something that's worth protecting with a sword. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So for me, like when we talk about the sacred masculine, we're actually talking about a role not of follow me, but actually a role that creates the conditions for that learning, that exploration, that questioning, that, pe that, that peer partnership that you're talking about to take place. There's something uh, very fierce in that stance Absolutely. that isn't about that isn't about ownership. Yes. Right. Or not ownership that, uh, in the ways that we've thought about it. Right. 
We want right. yeah, everybody right, to right, feel that right. ownership, right? And and not in yeah. the possessive sense, but in the sense of like, right. of course this is ours. Yeah. Of course this is mine. No. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. How very uh, enlightening and it's very exciting to talk about it. <laughs> it really yeah. is. It's okay. I feel like you've given me like like three different things I'm in right. I'm like, oh, I wonder how I can more intentionally bring in that fourth mode, right? Like just by knowing about those other three things and and nurturing them or, you know, or kind of dampening them when one is, you know, too strong. So that's so amazing to me. And I'm wondering how, because one of the things I love to talk with you about is because for many years you did kind of traditional diversity training, equity work, like you know that world, like I know that world. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how your own understanding around doing that kind of work, the work of liberation, I want to put it that way. What are you learning and understanding and knowing about the work of liberation? So there are several different perspectives from which I could answer that question or respond to it. I don't mm-hmm. really, yeah, I say respond. One of them is metaphysical. One of them is more psychological. Uh, one of them is more personal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So let me start with the metaphysical. All right. We are already free. We are already free. We were created free. That is a very difficult thing for the oppressed and repressed mind to really wrap itself around. That we are eternal creators. And we have been systematically and very carefully taught to not know that. To see ourselves as being at the whim of something that's happening from outside of ourselves. So I often think about enslaved people and how they came out of a cosmology that saw the interplay of forces and everything and saw themselves as part of that interplay. These forces are interplay and in a, in an interwoven relationship to each other. And even under conditions of extreme suppression and repression, one can find one's freedom. We see examples of this all the time, but we don't, Yeah, I don't know why we don't um, study them more. Malcolm X is an example. There are all these examples of people who under, you know, I'm sure you all already heard this before, but I'm told that when um, Nelson Mandela and and the men, other men who. Yeah, I'll just say they ended up in prison on Robbins Island. They he said to them, the first thing supposedly he said to them was what you have to know right now is that this is not a prison. This is a classroom, a school. Mm. Mm. So you, he reframed the experience. That's an act of supreme freedom to take charge of the narrative, you know, to have someone, Sojourner Truth say, I will not let the light of my life be determined by the darkness around me. It's a supreme mm. act of declaration of freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. But we don't tend to focus on those. 
right? It's like, anyway, um, so we are free. We are expressive mm. beings. We get to express. One of my, my tagline for my uh, website is uh, impression without expression equals depression. So the world is impressing mm. itself. Our feelings are impressing themselves. All kinds of things are impressing themselves upon us all the time. And we are trained not to express how we're affected because that's what I would call soul work. And soul work is messy and unpredictable. And you never know where things are going to go. And if you don't have people around you with an understanding and an ability to work with these forces as they come up, um, it can be dangerous. That's why I like to train people. Like, mm -hmm. it's okay. You can work with someone who's storming. You don't have to make them not storm. Mm -hmm. You can work with someone who's storming. You just mm -hmm. see it as a storm. Right. And you roll, you roll with exactly. it and you, you know, and you cheer it on. And then it moves on, like, just like storms in the sky. They move on. But if you mm -hmm. are constantly asked to swallow those storms, you get sick. And you get depressed or you have to do things like drink or eat or gamble or all kinds of other stuff. Um, so anyway, I feel like the cosmology, the cosmology of the folks who were enslaved here, um, it, it contained medicine that allowed enslaved people to go into the clearings in the middle of the night. Like I say to people all the time. Does this make any sense to you that people would work 14 hours and then go find a place to ritualize when you're dying mm. of exhaustion, right. you're hungry, mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're so depleted emotionally in all kinds of ways, but they knew something. They knew that more important than sleep, more important than food was to find a place to go and release and praise being just praise being and they did it mm -hmm. and they mm -hmm. became a culture of people who have influenced the entire globe with their power of expression. How mm. did that happen for mm. 244 years? You can't, you don't wait, you wake up and you belong to somebody else for 244 years. How do you end up being a people who have that kind of influence on the globe? It's because you have a relationship to being. And even if you're not free 9, 99.9% .9 of the day, that 0.1% that you are, you tap into deep wells of knowing, deep wells of strength and power. And um, so that, yeah, I don't even know how I got out there, but basically I'm saying we're already free. We have what we need to heal ourselves, to reestablish ourselves as um, beings of magnitude, beings of creativity, beings of beauty and goodness and light. We are incredible, incredible beings, all of us. And we need processes that help us to reconnect to that fact. Which is, I mean, I just, I feel so moved. He's <laughs> okay. I feel so moved from what you said. And that, what you just said, 
we are all these incredible beings that need processes to bring us back is such a fundamentally way for us to work with equity. It just, it, it tips it on its head. It, it makes. It feels like it's a description of our work. I hope so. I mean, like, like that's, I mean, I'm a, that feels like the work that we're in. I, I hope so. I love that. I just got such a hit when you said, I wrote it down. We are already free. And I think I just heard this weekend that Harriet Tubman used to say, my people are free. Not like I'm freeing my people or we're going to get free. My people are free. Right. I mean, right. When people don't know, when we don't know that we're free, that is no one has to do anything to us. No Mm -hmm. one has to do anything to Mm -hmm. us. We just don't Mm -hmm. even act free because we don't know that we are. One of my teachers said, um, you know, at some point you, you're like, you're all in these prisons these cages and pretty soon the cage is going to be opened and you're going to be shaken out onto the grass. (laughs) And at first you're going to sit there trembling going, (laughs) I don't know what's going on and I don't know how to be free, but very quickly, (laughs) very quickly you will remember who you really are. Mm. And it makes me think about people who are, who are, who get stranded somewhere. Right. And they're completely untrained in how to be in, the wilderness or in nature and something wakes up because we were out there far longer than we've been inside. My other teacher told me that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, it's okay. We were outside for far, far longer than we've been inside. There is a memory in us about how to be outside. Mm-hmm. I was working in, uh, I was working in Hawaii once and we were in, uh, uh, we we visited a hula and the the elder in the hula was talking and he was saying to the folks who were there you know don't come here and appropriate my indigeneity go find your own you know and uh, there was a fella from Europe who kind of piped up and said well what if your indigenous culture was wiped out fifteen hundred years ago you know what if it came under such severe attack that it was just has been largely eradicated historically you know which is exactly what did happen right and and so the the uh the elder just burst out laughing he burst out laughing and he said he said go light a fire go whistle a tune it's closer than you think yes (laughs) but it's it's what you're saying right it's like it's not it's not actually that far away you know and i was hearing your talk and i was thinking about like you know, I have a meditation, I have a meditation practice and I'll sit for an hour, you know, and, and in that hour, like there's just these like moments where like my entire being will settle, you know, and it's not the majority of the hour ever <laughs> for me. Cause I don't know. I'm just not like that. I don't know. But there's these moments when I just settle and like, I'm just there. And sometimes it lasts, I don't even know, maybe a half a millisecond even, but I notice yeah. it. Yeah, I'm paying attention, and other times it lasts a little longer. Yeah, you know? but there's but I was thinking about like how little it takes actually to reconnect. Yeah, you know, like that moment sitting on a rock where suddenly, you know, like I live on the bay by the sea, and I'll go sit on the rocks, and there's a moment suddenly where I'm just reconnected back in again, and and so there's something about those you were you were just pointing to those moments where it's, 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 it's closer than we think, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have been on this kick lately, um, the last month, 
of trying to get as many people as possible to watch a YouTube video called How Diablo Became Spirit. And it's there are many iterations of it that have been done, but the main the, the primary one, I'll just say for anyone who decides to go find it, is 13 minutes and 17 seconds long. That's the one. <laughs> That's the one you want to watch. All right. And it it highlights um, a woman who's an animal communicator who has communicated with white, great whites, sharks, and with baboons. And you can see her. You can see her in the wild with the baboons and all this other stuff. Anyway, she works with this black leopard um, who is very, very violent. And she get you know, anyway, she helps him to reconnect with the man who has brought him to this preserve. And... Um, Something about that, I feel like it is, it's, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a call to all of us that this is where we're headed. We're headed Mm. to where we actually honor the being of every single Mm. created thing. Like I grew up, we hated roaches. We hated roaches. And for some reason, in our town right now, because the heat, I don't know what, but there's been some roaches coming around. <laughs> and I, I don't even think twice. Bam, they're gone, right? No. No, they're gone. Is that right? It's okay. But oh. since watching that video, it has, it's, it's changed. It's like, mm. okay, I just need to talk, tell you guys, you gotta, I, I need you to leave my house. I don't want to kill you, but. Anyway, I'm just saying that consciousness yeah. is shifting. Yeah. Consciousness is shifting. And that is as important for diversity work, equity work as mm-hmm. anything else is. That we are mm-hmm. all on a consciousness expansion journey. And it's okay. We don't have to lock down on this is what I thought last year and I got a hold to that forever no matter what. No, allow yourself to be persuaded that it's bigger. You can this picture is so big and so complex. You couldn't hold it if your life depended on it. So why, why dig in? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. see if you can kind of loosen those boundaries a little bit and say, oh, you know, actually, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know I what's going to free us. I don't really know what's going to free us. I want freedom. I want liberty. Mm-hmm. I want for us to be out from under oppression, but I don't really know what's going to do it. I'm just committed to walking the path. We don't have to know. The last thing I'll say about this, my granddaughter goes to Sonoma State and she's in a class, uh, uh, ethnic studies class. And um, there's a guy in there, African-American guy in that class who um, is very, very smart, very wise, has a lot of good contributions to make in the class. But yesterday, um, the professor asked them each to construct sentences from the uh, position of being privileged based on um, Peggy McIntosh's article, you know, about white privilege, unpacking mm-hmm. the invisible map. Yeah, map unpacking the invisible. And so she wanted them each to find where they're privileged and to, con- and to write, craft these statements. I can do this because I am um, a USer. I can walk down the street and not worry about, you know, being stopped by, you know, 
and ask for my papers or whatever, rated, have, have be rated and sent away and blah, blah, blah. And this guy could not think of one thing. He could not think of one area where he's privileged. Not one. And the professor just wow. kept rattling off, rattling off all kinds of um, examples mm -hmm. and he still couldn't get there. So this takes mm. me to uh, sort of a sore spot for me where I think that because the, the conversation almost all, always pivots on race, um, mm -hmm. we don't get a chance to work on where we are. What I, my language for it is non-target, right? So as a woman, I'm, yeah. I'm in the target yeah. group. As yeah. a black person, I'm in the target group. As a fat person, I'm in the target group. But if I only work on where I'm on the target side, I never get to explore a, where am I not target and how am I participating in somebody else's mistreatment? Yes. And B, yes. I never get to yeah. cultivate the compassion necessary. Right? Because right. I'm always exactly. the one who's being hurt. But when I look at how mm -hmm. I am, you know, the beneficiary of some, you know, at somebody else's expense, there's a compassion I begin to have for people who don't have, who don't know how to get out of the non-profit right. role. Do you know what That's I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. And we can't understand their longing to be out of that role. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, just, we're just so limited. I think that that's, that's, that's right. I'm so glad you said that. And I know we need to kind of begin to wrap up, but just it's okay to let you know, like part of what we talk about on this podcast quite a bit of time is um, uh, the difference in our backgrounds and where it's actually like our identities and our growing up has actually deeply been benefited us. And in some ways it's areas of privilege, like Tim coming from a private school background in England. In some ways it's just like, I actually have some real knowing coming from this particular identity that you don't get to know, right? And that actually is a benefit. It may not yes. be official privilege, but it's a benefit to yes. me. And so we have quite a bit of that conversation here. I want to wrap us up just because I know we're short on time and take and ask if folks want to find you, they find you for the love of soul. Is that what they're, is that what I would look for if I were looking for a Soki Femi? For, no, it's um, Soul Matters. Soul Matters. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So we look at Soul Matters and we'll link that in our show notes. Uh, yeah. And we'll link the uh, video you mentioned in the show notes too. So you can go to the website folks and you'll see underneath the podcast, the YouTube link. That oh, Asoka that's was great. And there. while they're at it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. there's another documentary called um, the power of the heart. And there's a story in there of a woman who was part of the Rwandan, you know, massacre. Mm -hmm. She was holed mm -hmm. up in a four by six foot bathroom for three months with five other women, they never came out. Not one second did they come out of that bathroom. They were being protected by a Hutu minister and they were Tutsi. Mm. And um, she came out of there weighing 89 pounds. I mean, that they, they barely ate. Anyway, she had an experience of forgiving those people who slaughtered her whole family and the whole, oh. anyway. That's another one I think very much worth seeing. I think I had you look at it once. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, we watched it together. Yeah, it was right. really good. Yeah. It was really good. 
Yeah. And so we will, we will link that. Um, but one of the things we do, Isoke, is we ask each of our guests um, to share with us a poem and a song. Um, and so I'd love to invite you to share a poem that's on your mind and heart right now, and then we'll get to the song after that. Okay. This poem, um, many people have probably have heard it. It's by Rumi, who was, a, I think, a 13th century or 12th century uh, Sufi poet called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you. And the song for the suffering soul, I would say. Be still and know, be still and know, be still and know you are one. Be still and know, be still and know, be still and know you are one. You're welcome. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share our aliveness, our connectedness, our beauty. All right. I love this. I love this. We'll just call this part one of, I don't know, two, three, four. We'll see. We'll see how many we can do, but... It's been so good to have you, friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you thank from deep you. inside. So that's it for this episode of Find the Outside, the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. New episodes of the podcast are available every second, yes, Tuesday. Yep. If you'd like to get in touch with us about something you heard on the show, you can reach us at podcast at findtheoutside.com. You can find links to any of the resources, the poem Isoke said, the video she mentioned, we that were mentioned anything during the show in the show notes for this episode over at findtheoutside.com slash podcast or in the description for the podcast in the podcast app you're listening to us on. You can find all the songs we play in the shows and every song we've ever played in previous shows on the playlist at Spotify. Just search Find the Outside on Spotify playlists or you can find a link over at findtheoutside.com backslash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Coffin at Sound Good Studio. Theme music for the out- for Find the Outside podcast is by Gary Blakemore. Take care, folks. Thanks, Gary. Thank you. Bye.